to meet you. Yes, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show here today. It is an honor to have you. We have one of the greatest character actors of all time. You may know him as Jerry Dandridge in Fright Night, Detective Mike Norris in Child's Play, the voice of Jack Skellington in Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, or even Leon in Dog Day Afternoon, the one and only Chris Sarandon. How are you doing, Chris Sarandon? I'm doing great, Max, and I hope everybody out there in your audience is doing well as well. Uh, and how's it during this time through the pandemic for you as an actor? We've been, I mean, there's not a, well, actually there's more going on now than there has been. In fact, my wife is in Los Angeles as we speak, directing a, a screenplay that she wrote. Um, <clears throat> so things are up and running, but obviously there are pandemic protocols that are being followed very strictly. So. Uh, you know, it's been a tough time for everybody, but uh, I can't complain. Mm -hmm. So let's start from the beginning. You were actually born in Beckley, West Virginia. You got it. Attended West Virginia University, and you started out in politics. You wanted to be, be very popular in college and eventually worked your way up to the theater classes and the Catholic University of America. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, that's where I got my master's degree. And in fact, at the time, um, I know there are uh, masters of fine arts programs all over the country for acting right now. But at the time, this was a long, long time ago. Um, this is, we're talking uh, 60s, mid 60s. Uh, there weren't a lot of programs that did that. And Catholic U, Yale and Carnegie Tech were the three that did. And I didn't have a lot of experience in the theater. And, so Catholic U was the school I got into. So basically I ended up there and best thing that could have happened to me. Oh, for sure. I'm sure that having that theater experience gave you edge on the screen once you made the connection and transition to film and TV. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I worked a lot in theater before I did my first movie. I didn't do my first movie, in, which was Dog Day, uh, Dog Day Afternoon until I was in my early 30s. Wow. So before then, you know, from my 20s through then, I've been working uh, in regional theater, off Broadway, on Broadway. I've done a couple of Broadway shows, a um, couple of Broadway musicals, actually, oddly enough. And uh, and and then uh, Dog Day came along. So what's interesting is that when you went for your degree mm -hmm. originally at the West Virginia University, you got the degree in speech. There was no theater department there. Yeah. Yeah, at the time. There is now. There's a huge uh, creative arts program there. There's a theater department and a whole new campus. Uh, when I was there, there it was in, everything was in one little building called Reynolds Hall. Uh, and uh, it was the, the um, well, the facilities were challenging. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. At the time, anyway. <laughs> so you get in the theater, you get in the film. Dog Day Afternoon comes about. And actually, this wasn't the first time you actually met Al Pacino because you worked with his girlfriend at the time on another play, I believe. Right. It was the original Broadway production of a play called, or a musical called The Rothschilds, mm -hmm. uh, which is about a um, very, uh, an extraordinary family from uh, Europe who uh, lived in the uh, ghetto, in the Jewish ghetto of, I believe originally they were in, Frankfurt, Germany. I'm not, don't, don't call me on this. Uh, and um, the, the father was a coin dealer and he uh, happened to strike up a relationship with the prince who was uh, the head honcho of that part of the world at the time. 
and he became uh, he the prince became his client, and uh, through his connections, he ended up uh, sending the boys out. The he had five sons, and he sent them out to um, Paris, London, um, Frankfurt. Well, they were in Frankfurt, but Frankfurt, uh, Vienna. And uh, I've forgotten the name of the fifth city, but at any rate, uh, I played one of the brothers and uh, the, it was a very successful uh, Broadway show. And it was my first experience in New York, really. Uh, I had done a soap opera for a while and, uh, and then this came along and that began my, my New York theater career. And then I, I was in another Broadway musical and a couple of other things. And then I was traveling around doing theater. And then I got a call one day um, and and um, uh, I knew Sidney Lomet, who was the director who directed Dog Day Afternoon, right? Uh, who also directed a bunch of amazing movies, Serpico, uh, Network, um, uh, uh, any number of other great, great movies. And uh, I knew Sidney because my then ex, or my then wife, Susan, had been in a movie that Sidney directed. So we kind of knew each other and I walk in to the audition and Al Pacino is sitting there uh, to read with everybody who's gonna read for this role. And I remember that he'd been the boyfriend of Jill Clayburgh who was in the Rothschilds with me. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, even though New York is a huge city, as you know, yeah. uh, in some ways it's a small town. It is, you know, it really everybody is. Knows, everybody knows everybody. Oh, especially in, in your field and business, I'm sure of it as well. But Academy Award winning performance, you were nominated for it. Nominated. I, lo I, I, loved, I loved hearing the story of when you got to the award show and you thought they were cheering for you, the audience, but they're actually cheering for Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> this was, yeah, you know, there's a, at the time the red carpet was kind of different and it was literally as you walked out of your car, you walked down a long, long, long red carpet and there were stands like uh, a bleachers where people sat. And there was a guy in a kind of tower up above uh, and you had to climb up to get there who was interviewing everybody who walked through. And at one point, uh, uh, my ex and Susan and I are walking along and somebody says, oh, uh, Army Archer, this is the guy. He was the, um, he was the um, columnist in uh, Variety, at Variety, uh, the daily you know, uh, uh, newspaper. And uh, uh, he said, Army wants to speak to you. And I said, oh, great. Hey, you know, I'm a movie star now. And, and so I climbed the stairs and I'm standing up there and I'm talking to Army and I'm hearing from the bleachers that people are going, Chris, Chris, Chris. And I'm going, geez, you know, this is it's hot stuff. I'm, uh, I'm now a, um, a bonafide uh, movie star and I'm talking and I'm holding forth in a very kind of, you know, asinine way. Uh, very sort of narcissistic, self, you know, uh, aggrandizing way. And I hear people going, okay, and I said, well, they're still cheering for me. And then I realized they weren't cheering for me anymore. They were cheering for the next guy who was coming up, <laughs> Sly Stallone. So that put things in perspective, to say the least. You know, a fame is fleeting. Oh, it's just an amazing story. And I love hearing it every time. Did you get to talk to Sylvester Stallone that night? Uh, actually, I knew Sly, and I can call him that because I know him or knew him a long time ago. He and I shared the same manager. Wow. A woman, wonderful woman by the name of Jane Oliver. And at the, at the time, this was pre-Rocky. Mm -hmm. I'm talking before the Academy Awards, before anything. 
uh, Jane was first my agent and then she became a manager and she also handled Sly. She handled my ex-wife, Susan Sarandon, and um, a guy by the name of Perry King, a couple of other people. And so I knew him through Jane and uh, Sly was basically, you know, a struggling young actor um, for whom there didn't seem to be a place in Hollywood because he was such a, you know, he was a kind of hulking figure. Um, and Sly talked with that, you know, that thing that he does. And uh, Jane was his great champion and she sort of shepherded through the screenplay that he wrote of Rocky and uh, it became a phenomenon, obviously. And, you know, the sequels, et cetera, et cetera. And the rest is Sylvester Stallone history. Mm -hmm. From Dog Day Afternoon, we got to go right into Fright Night now. Tom Holland, you didn't know him at first. Eventually, you just got a call, I believe. Was that right, when you got the script? Uh, I got a, yeah, I got the script from my agent. At the time, I had been working in, I'd done a, a bunch of films. Uh, I'd done probably seven or eight movies, and I'd done a lot of TV specials, that sort of thing. And uh, I got this script called Fright Night. And at the time, uh, I was still pretty full of myself. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd been on Broadway, off Broadway. I'd done a lot of Shakespeare. Uh, and I'm looking at a script and it says on the, co on the cover, Fright Night. And I'm thinking, I can't, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a high class actor. And, uh, and my agent said, well, you know, it's an offer. They want you to do this. So I said, well, out of respect for the guy who wrote it and who's directing it, I'll read it. And then I'll call my agent and say, I'm sorry, but I don't do horror movies, right? So I started reading it. And within 10 or 15 minutes, I was transfixed. Uh, it was a great screenplay. It still is. Uh, you know, it's beautifully constructed. Uh, and after I finished reading it, I, I turned to my, this is my second marriage. I turned to my my wife and I said, I, I, I've got to meet this guy at least, you know, to see what this is all about. So um, I, I told my agent, let's set it up. And they, they kindly flew me to Los Angeles to meet him and the uh, producer, Herb Jaffe. And uh, we sat down and we started talking. And after the kind of pleasantries of, you know, hi, how you doing? How is everything in New York? It's nice to meet you, et cetera. Uh, we had a couple of maybe mutual friends. Uh, Tom said, I'd like to describe the movie to you. And I said, oh, great. And he proceeded to describe the movie shot by shot. That is, this is how I'm going to, you know, this is the, the crane's going to come down here and then it's going to move in on Jerry. There's going to be a such and such and so and so. And by the time he'd finished, like two hours later, I, I was, I looked at him and I said, dude, I'm in. <laughs> you know, I obviously, you know, it was his first directing job, mm -hmm. right? But he had a history of writing screenplays, it, right. a number of which had been done in, in Hollywood. Um, so I, I thought, you know, let's cast my lot with this guy. This is really an interesting script. It's a wonderful idea. He knows what he's doing. I don't have to worry about that. And uh, it became one of the better collaborative experiences of my life, actually, of my movie life. One of the greatest, one of the greatest vampires of all time. You can't forget that. And I love the scene once Charlie comes down from being called from his mother and you're sitting in the chair and you just turn over and you say, hello, Charlie. Just the way that your facial expressions were, you can really tell that you enjoyed this role. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I have to give a lot of credit to Tom, who um, gave me the, the uh, he, he let loose the reins, as it were, in the sense that he didn't have anything 
proprietary about the character other than what was on the page. But anything else, any other ideas I had, he was very open to. And also what was great about the experience was that uh, Tom had been an actor. So he understood the kinds of things that actors need to do to prepare for roles. So we spent a number of days before the shooting actually started talking about the characters. He asked us to bring in biographies of the characters, that is backstories mm -hmm. of the characters. And we sat around and chatted. I mean, for, for a movie of that genre, it was very unusual to operate that way, which is from a, from a, from a level of, of reality and uh, in a way naturalism, that these are all natural events. They're not supernatural events. Uh, and if you treat it that way, then it makes it much more real for an audience. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear when preparing for this role, who was a vampire that you looked up to as an inspiration for this role prior? Bela Lugosi, was it, or was it Nosferatu? What was the role that you looked forward to in putting? Uh, actually, all of those. It was all yeah, of them. I, I, I have always been a big fan of, uh, I'm a major sort of TCM freak, first of all. <laughs> uh, uh, I still have, you know, I'm going down to watch a movie called Nanachka as soon as we're done because it's great. Uh, 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 Greta Garbo movie, uh, I think Fritz Lang directed it or one of the great, you know, Hollywood directors at any rate. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I was a big fan of the Murnau Nosferatu. And by the way, Tom uses an inspiration, uh, a number of the things from Nosferatu, including that final makeup with the, the big ears and the, you know, that horrible kind of uh, uh, beast-like face. Um, and the rising out of the casket where, where uh, Jerry comes up uh, kind of this way and, and rises from the, from the dead. In the basement scene. Yeah, he based that on Nosferatu. Uh, and a number of other things that were, and one of the great things about the script was that it had, because we were all familiar with those movies, and one of the, the, the inspirations for Tom Holland when he wrote the script was that he had been saddened by the fact that um, vampire movies were not taken seriously anymore in Hollywood. That this is pre-True Blood, this is pre-Francis um, um, uh, Ford Coppola's movie. Um, the Even pre-Lost Boys. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and so during that period, just before he made Fright Night, a lot of movies were making fun of vampire movies, Love at First Bite. Uh, there were a couple of others, right? And he felt that the, the, the genre needed a, a kind of goose, as it were. Uh, but he knew that because of present audience's sensibilities that he had to have some fun with it, but at the same time, take it very seriously. So the kind of watchword or the watch phrase was, we're gonna have fun with it, but we're not gonna make fun of it, which is a very, very uh, important distinction. So the movie's funny, and it turns some of the vampire conventions on their on their ear, you know, the whole cross thing where he tells uh, uh, Roddy McDowell, you have to have faith when Roddy holds up the cross to, to Jerry saying, back, back, who's fond of Satan or whatever he says. Um, uh, and, uh, and there is humor there, but at the same time, we all took it obviously very seriously. And mm -hmm. doing the research and just hearing you before that you didn't originally want to take this role because you didn't want to do horror movies. How come horror movies at the time had this perception of this, no one, the classic the theatrical trained actors didn't want to get involved with horror because I'm curious to, to know how the viewpoint 
was on Universal Monsters. And like, when did that kind of did people just change their opinions on horror movies or just kind of beneath the classic actors? Well, I think to a certain extent, the Hammer films kind of flew in the face of that, you know, with, with, with actors like Christopher Lee and Peter, Peter Cushing, whom, by the way, I got the chance to work with once, Peter Cushing. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I did a, a, a CBS a Hallmark Hall of Fame adaptation of, uh, of Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities. And Peter Cushing played the father of the, my character's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. um, he played Dr. Manette in it. And I'll never forget the first time I walked into a, the rehearsal studio where we were, we were going to be rehearsing the play or the movie. And uh, there sits Peter Cushing and he's got a cigarette in his hand, right? Like this. And he's smoking, but he has a white glove on his hand. And the fingers are cut out of the white glove and they're all tobacco stained. So he, he wore the white glove to keep from staining his fingers. And he, he would smoke very, very elegantly. And then I uh, just, you know, sort of bowled over by meeting him. I said, uh, Mr. Cushing, he said, hello, dear boy, smoke. It was, it was, uh, you couldn't have, you couldn't have written it that way. Right. No. Um, and, um, at any rate, I think that they started becoming, uh, they started being taken more seriously as the audience grew, mm -hmm. because for a long time, the, the audience was a niche audience. Uh, uh, it wasn't when they first came out, when the first Dracula came out, when Frankenstein came out. Those movies were general audience movies. Everybody went to see them, and people loved to be scared. And then somehow they took on, over the years, a kind of of um, second-class B-movie sort of feel. And of course, a lot of them were made that way. Mm -hmm. Made very cheaply, uh, not with big budgets. Yeah. Uh, and it started to change with movies like Lost Boys, Fright Night, um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula movie, uh, the Anne Rice movie that Tom Cruise did, um, and Brad Pitt. Uh, and I think there was a gradual kind of recognition. And also then there were a couple of television series that became very popular. True Blood became very popular. And Buffy the and, Vampire Slayer. Yeah. Dark Shadows. Exactly. Buffy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Dark Shadows goes back a, yeah. a bit, but still. Uh, and so I think there, th then there was a kind of, you know, there's always an ebb and flow in, in things. I mean, I know this from... Uh, I'm a big sports fan, and you uh, obviously you are too, yes. right? You're wearing a, a Mets cap. Uh, I'm a Yankee fan, by the way, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I'm a Knicks fan. I'm a and, Knicks fan too. Oh, all right. We're we're we're, we're totally solid then. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you've seen what's happened with the Knicks for years. Yeah. And, you know, but there were there was a time when there was greatness, and then the ebb, and then now that we're back in the flow again. Yeah. Um, this is life. And very often that happens in show business as well. And quite frankly, it ends up, the bottom line is the bottom line. What sells? Yeah. And horror movies started selling again and they became more mainstream. And also they became much more predictably money makers. And in a, in a, in a world where, except for the big tent uh, Marvel movies uh, the the uh, the big special effects movies. There are no sure things anymore, no. except for horror movies. Horror movies almost always make money. They do, and so they uh, tend to attract then better actors. They also tend to attract better directors. 
and all cer certain directors also become very well known for th their genre work. Um, and you know, look at John Carpenter. Look at uh, uh, any number of great horror directors. Wes Craven. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, Tom Holland. That's you right. Know, Can't forget Tom's, about him. Yeah, Tom's specialty as well with Child's Play and uh, Fright Night, and he did the TV version of Thinner, the the Stephen King. Um, so you know, things they go in cycles, and we are we are now in I think a, a time when horror movies are appreciated much more. Although, and I will say this as a kind of a, just a personal nitpick, that. The ones that scared me the most were the ones that showed less. That is the ones in which you were anticipating something happened, something would happen, something happened, but it happened just off camera or it happened on camera to the point where there wasn't a limb that come fl came flying at you on, <laughs> on screen or there weren't fingers being chopped off or you know whatever. The ones, and if you look at Fright Night, there, there's first of all, there's no CGI in that movie at all. No, thank goodness. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, not one bit. It's all old-fashioned FX, you know, special effects stuff. Um, so, sort of a rambling answer to your question, but I, I think that things go in and out of fashion, and uh, horror movies are obviously in now. Thank goodness, because horror, I think it's the greatest genre of all time. It's just, and, 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 I, and I agree with you on the point of what you don't see is what's the scariest. I'll give you a perfect example, Jaws. I think yeah. what Steven Spielberg did with the cameras underwater when the shark wasn't working, exactly. that saved the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And despite his youth at the time, he understood that. And he understood it because he was a fan of the movies uh, that were uh, in which not everything was shown. In, in, in relation to the question that I just asked, how does it feel now, originally not wanting to do the role because we know why, because of how horror movies were perceived back then, now being looked at as a horror icon for your role as Jerry Danridge? How does it feel to be looked at one? And, and well, Jack Skeleton, of course. <laughs> it's, it's great. I, I'm, uh, I'm very fortunate that uh, I instinctively made a, a couple of decisions uh, with uh, Tom, particularly with Tom Holland, with Fright Night and Child's Play, uh, the Chucky, the original Chucky mm -hmm. movie, uh, and Nightmare Before Christmas just happened. I, I just was in the right place at the right time. Uh, I auditioned, and um, and they picked me. <laughs> you know that's the way it usually happens. Uh, you know you got to go through the gauntlet before you can uh, get the prize. Um, and uh, I've actually done a couple of other sort of lower budget. Um, films that were done one in canada called uh, reaper which is an interesting little movie about a, a, a very strange writer and uh, i also did a lovecraft hp lovecraft movie um i don't know what the release title ultimately ended up being but it, it's the something about charles dexter ward but that was actually an interesting movie because that was uh, a screenplay or an adaptation and directed by a guy by the name of dan o'bannon Mm -hmm. who created Alien, the original Alien mm -hmm. uh, screenplay script. Wow. Yeah. So I've done a few of them uh, over the years. 
and much in your own right, a horror icon. How long did the makeup process take for Fright Night? Because if you notice as the vampire transitions on in the movie, it, it has the Nosferatu look and the makeup becomes more advanced and it wasn't CGI, which is a great thing. And I would, did you, and then, okay, I'll, that, that's my question for now. Then I'll ask my follow-up one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the makeup, first of all, in, in those days, and I hesitate to use that term, but this is 1980s, mid-80s, uh, the um, makeup, not only was the CGI not, non-existent, but also makeup was uh, much more primitive as well. Now, very often, there are just single piece appliances that go on. Um, back then, it was... I got to the makeup trailer at 4 a.m. in the morning, and at noon, they were done. Uh, and in the meantime, it was all piece by piece by piece, and then blending each piece in uh, with latex. Uh, at one point, after like one or two days of this, I turned to Kenny Diaz, who was this, the, uh, the FS makeup, makeup guy, and I said, Kenny, I'm going to go crazy. Uh, eight hours a day of this for a week or two. Uh, and I come from the theater and I know how to do makeup. So let me do something. And he said, do you want to do your hands? And I said, yeah, okay. So they let me do the, you know, the extended fingers, which were just, a, you know, a rubber appliance that goes on your finger. And it's like a cup that goes over your finger, but then you have to blend the edges in. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I did the blending and then I did the stippling with a, with a, a sponge and the, the basic kind of makeup on my hands. And it kept me busy for those eight hours, thank God, or I'd, I'd have gone mad. Do you see makeup returning that way in this day and age? I know CGI has just become the, the fallback for makeup artists mm -hmm. and just movies nowadays. Do you feel as though that, they're, that the, the industry may make its way back to using real makeup effects again? Well, I, I don't know the answers to that because I'm not involved in um, many situations in which you know that kind of makeup is done. Mm -hmm. I do know that even... After that, when, uh, for instance, uh, Billy Crystal's makeup in uh, Princess Bride, mm -hmm. okay? Billy and, and the whole Saturday night when they do uh, ma makeup, they use a lot of appliances as well. Uh, Billy uses the guy who I think was the Saturday Night Live guy. At any rate, he knew him from there. And uh, he had an extraordinarily complex makeup as well, but there were more sort of complete pieces used now. And so instead of eight hours, he, his makeup was four. Still yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of time, yeah. Um, and I don't know exactly what's going on now in the, in the special effects makeup world. I'm totally out of that world uh, as we speak. So I can't, I can't really speak to it. No. It, what is your favorite scene as Jerry Dandridge in Fright Night? I think I have a couple. Uh, one, which was a kind of collaboration of, of Tom and me, um, at one point when we were all looking up our, you know, background stories, and I'm thinking, well, where's my background story going to come from? Because this guy's been alive for 400 years. Um, and so I started looking up vampire bats thinking, okay, well, if the genesis is somewhere there, then that's where I'll go. And I discovered, much to my surprise, that 90% or somewhere in that uh, range of all the bats in the world are fruit bats, not vampire bats. 
So I thought, well, maybe it'd be interesting if Jerry had a little fruit bat DNA in him. And, and I approached Tom and I said, what about, you know, if occasionally I'm eating fruit during the movie. And he the said, oh, that's great. I love that. That's great. And so he carried it further in that, in that great scene where Charlie's hiding in the bushes and Jerry walks out and he's eating an apple. And I said to Tom, what if I toss the apple at him? And he said, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. And, uh, and it, ha it became that moment where you see literally the, atom, the apple rolls into the frame and there's this horrible chunk that's been taken out of it. And it's, it's a wonderful kind of, you know, whoa moment in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was really just Tom and me deciding beforehand, oh yeah, this is a great idea. Let's see how we can use it. Uh, the other is uh, one, the scene where Jerry first uh, confronts Charlie in his, in his room and he grabs him and he shoves him up against the wall and Charlie's kicking the Pokemon machine and uh, Jerry gives him the choice of forgetting about it, uh, which is one of the great things I think that Tom allowed, and it was in the script originally, of giving Jerry some humanity, of, of not just making him this, this rapacious monster, but someone who has to tell you somehow that while the, the life of a vampire is very romantic, there's also a price. And that price is you're hunted for, your, for eternity. And so he says to Charlie, uh, I'll give you a chance, Charlie, whatever the, the actual dialogue is, um, just forget about it and then, you know, we're done. And Charlie refuses and Jerry just says one word. He just says one word and it's just fool. But I, I tried to imbue that with the, with, with the underneath the word with the sense of, oh God, now I have to, I have to kill you, and I don't want to kill you, but I will because that's what I am. Uh, it's sad, but it's also your fate. All that in one word, and to me, that's the magic of movies, and also sometimes the magic of acting, mm -hmm. is that often one word can can convey so much, especially on screen. You know, you see it you know, so. You know, yeah. <laughs> and and it was perfectly performed. Fool, that delivery is you. We just mm. you just clarified right there. Thank you. Thank you. McDowell, you had a very close relationship with him. He used to invite you to dinner, and there are tons of celebrities there. Movies that you grew up watching, even in your twenties and thirties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I Roddy was an extraordinary human being. He was, uh, first of all, I, if your audience is 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 familiar with Roddy from. Uh, his work, but probably more of them are familiar with Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. Right. Um, but I was a fan of Roddy's from the time I first saw a movie called How Green Was My Valley, which is a John Ford movie, uh, one of the great John Ford movies of all time. John Ford also directed um, uh, The Searchers. He directed uh, uh, Ty Yellow. I mean, you know, John Ford is like one of the great iconic directors of Hollywood history, right? He's primarily known by most people for his, his collaborations with John Wayne, 
but this was a movie in which uh, it's about a Welsh coal mining town. And it's based on a novel. And Roddy was a little boy in the movie. He was like six, seven years old. And he was amazing in this movie. And then he went on to do National Velvet with Elizabeth Taylor and uh, any number of movies as a child star. And then he matured into becoming a, a, a very fine featured actor in Hollywood. And he also was a student of film. He had hundreds and hundreds of prints of movies uh, that he collected over the years. And he also knew everybody. <laughs> and he loved to have dinner parties. Um, his dinner parties were famous because you'd sit down, you know, if you were invited, you'd sit down at the table with, uh, I didn't sit down with her, but Elizabeth Taylor. Or um, um, one night I sat down at a party with uh, um, Liza Minnelli and da David Hockney, this uh, very famous painter. Uh, and um, I mean, you name it, they came to Roddy's because Roddy knew them and he was their friend. It wasn't, it wasn't a, um, um, a, a kind of, you know, uh, I, I do this because I'm Joe Hollywood. It was because to, Roddy was a genuine friend. In fact, through my life until Roddy died on my birthday, no matter wherever Roddy was, I would get a card from him. Wow. If he was in Europe, if he was in Russia, wherever he was, he always remembered his friend's birthday. And in fact, in our house now, uh, as you walk in the foyer of our house, there's a bench, a pew from a church that Roddy gave me and my wife, Joanna. Uh, Joanna worked with him as well. She did a, a tour of a play with him wow. uh, for quite an extensive period of time. And he was just genuine, straightforward, no BS, lovely human being. And the stories about old Hollywood were just, you know, he knew all the gossip. He knew where all the bodies were buried. So between <laughs> shots, you know, we'd sit around and talk and Roddy would tell stories uh, and they were unbelievable. And he's deeply missed. And what a, what a saint, oh, yeah. just him sending you birthday cards every year, no matter what. There's family members that? that don't even remember who, my birthday. <laughs> yeah. Who does that? Nobody. Yeah. Roddy did it. No, and he was an accomplished photographer. He was an amazing photographer. You got that right. Yeah. Right night part two. Did they ever contact you to reprise your roles, Jerry Dandridge? Was there anything that came no, up? No, I don't think, first of all, uh, Tom wasn't involved. That's right. And if Tom hadn't had been involved, I'd have perhaps thought about it. But I think that he felt because the original worked so well that he didn't want to revisit it. But he did uh, put his imprimatur on the movie and say, okay, you guys want to make it, you go ahead and make it. Uh, Tommy Lee forget Tommy's name, uh, the gentleman who directed it, and uh, Julie Carmen, I believe, who was the, the female protagonist in the movie or the female vampire. Um, but no, I, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't involved, nor was I really interested in being involved. Not that I thought it was going to be bad or anything. It's just, you know, it's time to move on. Yeah. <laughs> I've done it. Let's, let's do something else. And do my research online, the cameo and the 2011 Fright Night, how do you feel about the remake? Actually, I think they did a really nice job. I know I have a lot of fans who come up to me and say, oh, the, the remake, and I, I, I try to calm them down a little bit and say, <laughs> first of all, they, they spoke of it immediately as a reimagining, not a remake, that they didn't want to 
um, make the same movie, even though they were basing it on the original. Um, and secondly, there was a kind of reverence for the first one by everybody who was involved in the second in the in the re, or the quote unquote remake, but the re reimagining. Um, and, and in fact, Colin Farrell, uh, the first day I arrived, I, I hear a kind of sheepish knocking on my door, uh, my, my dressing room, and uh, it's Colin. And he walked in and he was he was nervous. Uh, and I said, hi, how you doing? We shook hands and he said, I'm really, this is, this is weird for me. I said, why? And he said, I watched this movie 50 times when I was a kid. And he said, I'm such a huge fan and I just wanted to bring you something. And he brought me this extraordinary bottle of wine. And he gave me a box set of the Carl Dreyer Vampire, which is one of the original old vampire movies. Uh, and uh, the company couldn't have been nicer. They all were huge fans of the movie. Um, um, uh, Anton Yelchin who, Yelchin, who was sadly missed, is, uh, was a lovely young man, and uh, Tony Collette, they were all just so great. And, and, and as I say, I think they did a nice job. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the original, but hey. <laughs> I, that's my opinion on, on remakes. I just can't because I'm such a purist. I love the originals. Mm. I respect the original bodies of work. I wish there would be more John Carpenter's, Tom Holland's, and Wes Craven's out there that would create something new, but mm -hmm. it, that's hard to ask for in this day and age. Yeah, yeah, right. You, <laughs> you established such an amazing relationship with Tom Holland. He wants you to play Detective Mike Norris in Child's Play. He had to fight for you to have that role. Right. Yeah, I know. Uh, the producers and the studio all were uh, very trepidatious about casting me and I, I, I can understand it to a certain extent because I wasn't exactly your um, go-to guy for Chicago tough guy, cops guy, cop um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, Tom and I had developed a real shorthand working together. And also I think to a certain extent because Tom fights for his work and he knew that it was gonna be a tough go because he didn't he, he, it wasn't his original idea. He did write the screenplay, but he, he, it was in conjunction with a number of other parties. It was much more, there was much more of a studio involvement with it. Uh, with Fright Night, basically the studio left them alone because they had a couple of other big tentpole movies that they were working on. And so they just kind of ignored him, which was a great sort of artistic freedom for him. But that coupled with the fact that he knew it was going to be rough because, again, no CGI. Oh. And he's got animatronics going. He's got working with little people. He's got working with children uh, to double for, for Chucky. He's working with a child. Um, lots of special effects, lots of stunts. Uh, he knew it was going to be tough. And I think to a certain extent, he felt like I, I would be a, a, an ally. And in these situations, particularly when you're de dealing with movie studios, it's good to have uh, uh, a gunslinger at your side, so to speak, you know, to to uh, to back you up. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so he fought for me and uh, I ended up doing it. And it was a, it was a very tough shoot. Very cold and windy. Oh, man. Let me tell you, at one point. <laughs> I had a scene in which all I had to do was walk out of, of, of the police station 
as as Charlie's, I mean, as um, the little boy's mother is driving away, right? Uh, and I've forgotten the name of, I, I, I know Alex Vincent played the role, but I can't remember his, the kid's name. And, oh, Andy. Andy, right. And uh, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all I had to do was try to stop her from driving away, right? I just had to go, wait, wait, or something. I can't remember what I had to say. And literally the building was on the, on the river that abuts Lake Superior or whatever the lake is that abuts Chicago. And I walk out and, you know, we're all, the crew's all dressed in Eskimo wear and they're all, you know, they've got masks on and I'm dressed in a top coat and a vest and a jacket, basically. I've got some long underwear on, but no hat, nothing. And I walk out and just then a whoop of wind comes flying in and I go to open my mouth and I go to go, it's all I could get out. I was, my vocal cords were paralyzed, literally. It was so friggin' cold. I can't tell you what it was like. It was amazing. And we were shooting there dead winter. Chicago. It, that's worse because Chicago's right. usually cold anyway. And then you got yeah, yeah. The, the cold winter there. Yeah. Insane. And, and you were perfect for the part. The car scene's amazing. The shootout in the beginning, you actually would work hands-on in that scene with Brad Dorff, who was the voice of Chucky. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, in fact, I, just the other day, somebody said, just remember, you killed uh, James Lee Ray. Oh, Charles Lee Ray. Charles Lee. Charles Lee Ray. See, these movies are way in my past. <laughs> They're not in your past. Uh, yes, you killed it. So, so take credit for that. Yeah, and you should, and that's right, you did. Yeah, the Chucky. scene in the car. The scene in the car was tough. Uh, first of all, it was cold, but also, you know, you're sitting there, and there's a knife coming up through your crotch. <laughs> oh that scene oh that's when you when you actually sit up real quick because a knife comes up yes, yeah. <laughs> that's right but you know what the audience also doesn't see is for instance i spent probably three or four hours just with in the studio with a um a, a radio the face of a car radio and my hand just hitting buttons for three hours uh, so that the camera could get cutaways for that for 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 tom to be able to cut into that you know so that he gets a kind of wonderful sort of frightening experience because you see the guy is struggling with it for his life mm-hmm. um it, it's a fun business or even when you know, chucky takes the bat to you in the the bedroom oh yes a lot of fun, a lot of fun. <laughs> now when you saw the doll for the first time did you think that this was going to be become as iconic as it has i th- thought, first of all, that this was such a brilliant idea because this is every child's nightmare. And every human being has been a child at some point. I think we all, uh, I, I know I went through a period when I was younger where my, um, my boogeyman, as it were, was the original thing, the thing. Think from another child. world. Yeah, not the John Carpenter, but the um, James uh, Christian, Arnes. Christian Nyby, uh, it was actually Robert Wise who probably directed it, but it was a guy by the name of Christian Nyby who directed the original. Jim Arness, right, James Arness, who was the thing, and a cast of wonderful character actors, and one of the most chilling movies, I think, ever made. And I, I you know, for years, I had my the covers up over my head for a long time thinking that son of a bitch was coming after me (laughs) Uh, and I think that every kid has that sense of 
of uh, what if this, this funky thing that's in the corner of my room comes alive? What, 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 what would happen to me if that happened? And uh, I think we all have that in us somewhere, which is one of the reasons why I think the movie was so successful is because even though it's so fantastic, the idea that a criminal's soul is, is imbued in this, this doll, it's also, why not? What if, you know? Um, so I, I thought, you know, I just thought it was such a brilliant idea. And I thought, the, I haven't seen any of the sequels and there have been many, but uh, uh, I thought the original Tom did a, a great job. And there's nothing like the original. So you're really not missing anything, especially when we get into the bride and the seed. What a mess, but the, <laughs> the original. Although, although I hear, you know, I just did a, a, a Comic-Con with uh, some of the members of the cast mm -hmm. uh, of the original. Brad Dourif was there and um, uh, 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 a number of other people. Uh, Alex Vincent was there. Uh, and they're also now taking part in the television new tv series the chucky series the chucky series and they tell me it's really good i'll have to watch it yeah you know and and considering that we all feel kind of proprietary about the original uh that's saying something yeah oh i think it is an interesting story i love to hear if you had the chance to work with him because i believe that you were in the scene when he was behind the glass his that his name is jack colvin he played mr mcgee in the incredible hulk series Say, and what behind the glass where? oh in the scene where andy is in in the room and he's just been brought in because the house blew up jack colvin who played mr mcgee in the incredible oh. hulk series oh uh, uh, you're talking about uh, he was one of the cops on the other side of the glass he was the the psychiatrist oh he was the psychiatrist okay okay you're you got to refresh my memory with these things i haven't seen this movie in a long, <laughs> long time yeah yeah very cool interesting i didn't realize that Oh, wow. I thought you may have had a story with working with him because he's... No, no. Don't. No. And we brought up Jaws before. Actually, I believe you had the chance to work with Roy Scheider. Is that right? I was in a play my very first uh, Actors' Equity season in a summer theater. I was driving a car for the company, uh, driving the, the big name actors around to their home, wherever they were staying, because we were out in the country outside Washington, DC. This was when I was at Catholic U. And uh, it was a summer theater experience. And um, Roy was in a play called Stephen D, which is a, a uh, an stage adaptation of um, a, um, a famous book uh, about a, a dysfunctional Irish family back in the 1920s. Um, and uh, Roy was in the play. And so I got a chance, I played a minor character in the play and I got a chance to work with, or at least, you know, be around Roy. Um, and that was one of the great, it's, it's one of the great uh, things that we get a chance to do, especially if you're, we're young and you're working in the theater and you got a chance to work with really good people is watch them, watch <laughs> what they do, pick up the tricks. It's like anything, you know, I'm sure it's the same with sports. Yeah. You know, a lot of kids, a lot of kids walk up, uh, uh, grew up watching LeBron and they, they copy. Uh, and, and if they have talent and they have imagination, then they surpass the original. Well, a lot of people, the same, same thing with MJ. You know, people are, uh, 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 um, what's the phrase? It's uh, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. 
And uh, I, I watched these great actors work. I also was in a play with uh, an actress named Olympia Dukakis, uh, who's a very well-known character actress who was in Moonstruck, uh, any number of things. A lot of people would know who she is. And uh, I was 20, 21, 22 years old. And she was in her 30s at the time. Just get a chance to work with great people and you, you pick up a lot of great stuff. Mm -hmm. Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas. We got to get into what does this film mean to you? Because this has become such an iconic film for not only just one holiday, two holidays, and the merchandise for this film. Oh, my God. It's all over the place. <laughs> it's, it's astonishing. You know, when I do Comic-Cons, uh, there literally is every, every one I do, something new is shown to me. In fact, I've got a lot of the stuff. Oh, here. This is the latest thing that I just received from my agent who books me at these things. This is a music box. Let's see, does it work? Go figure. <laughs> An iconic role with such yeah. merchandise. Oh, there we go. Crazy, crazy. Anyway, All over the place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that was um, just one of the serendipitous things that happened in my life because I just went in to read and um, they were casting to the voice because Danny Elfman had already recorded the music and already recorded the songs and um and i went in and read some scenes and that was it they cast me and uh from then on it was every three months or so i would they would fly me up to san francisco which is where it was shot um in a big kind of warehousey building um there and i remember walking into the lobby the first day i was to record with henry sellers the director and there were storyboards all along the walls of the entire movie and uh and also <laughs> interestingly um things like ping pong tables and punching bags <laughs> and i thought what, what, what? But, but then when i saw what the actual work entails the actual shooting of the movie uh, because in that same building were, I don't know, four or five little sets um, with the animatronic figures. And literally, it's one frame at a time. So let's say that Jack's hand is doing something like that, okay? So they've got Jack's arm set this way. They move a finger, they shoot a frame. 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 So on and so forth, so that they get 11 seconds of usable film a week. Now, normal, you, know, you, you when you're shooting a movie, you know, regular movie, you get eight pages a day or five pages a day or whatever, you know. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so, and, and I would go into the studio with Henry Selig and Henry and I would record two or three scenes, just me and Henry. I would, I never worked, I worked once with, um, with Catherine O'Hara who played Sally. She and I did the Jack and Sally scenes together. Other than that, I always was by myself and with Henry and just doing the lines 
over and over. Okay, try it this way. I would do it that way. And then he'd say, okay, try it this way. And I'd do it this way. And now hit this word. And then I'd hit this word. Uh, if anybody has a romantic uh, conception of what doing voiceover work for animated movies is like, it's that's what it is. It's not romantic. <laughs> it's a lot of repetition. Uh, and then Henry would put the, the voice work together in, in the way he wanted it. And then they would animate that section of the movie that I did. And it took them three months to do one day's work for me. So, it was, and it was the same with all the other characters as well. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary experience in a lot of ways, particularly the first time I saw the whole movie because they sent me, because uh, uh, Tim Burton, after the whole thing was put together, Tim wanted to do some work on it, uh, voice work on it. And I also, there was some stuff that I had done and I wanted to do some, 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 you know, I wanted to make some changes or at least, you know, ask if I could. Um, and so they sent me uh, literally a VHS <laughs> of a black and white version of the movie with a time signature code showing on the bottom of the screen as you're, as you're watching it. So very primitive, right? And I put it in the machine. And at the time I was working in LA, working on another uh, picture and, uh, and my kids were with me and they were out doing something. I don't know, they were little kids at the time. I mean, they were, you know, maybe uh, uh, the oldest was six, wow. six, three and a, four, three and a half or four, four and a half. And the little one was, you know, a toddler. And uh, I'm watching it and I've got a notepad and I'm taking notes about some of the stuff I'd like to work on if I can. And suddenly these three little figures are in the room with me and they're like this. And this is no color. Uh, the time frame is, you know, is running across the bottom of the thing. It is as primitive as you could get. And they were transfixed. And I knew then that there was something really special about this. I, I had no idea that it would take on the life that it's taken since then. No, no conception. Now, part of that is the Disney machine. Uh, and I say that in a good way, I, I, you know, it's their ability to promote and also create these products, which keeps the interest up. Um, but also it's the magic of the movie itself. It's that stop action uh, animation that is unlike anything else. It's not like any other kind of animation. It's not like a computer animation. It's not like um, regular old fashioned conventional animation. It is a creature all its own. And it has that kind of, there's something about it that's just, and you've also got a great story, great characters, great music, and uh, a visual rendering of a world that is totally unique, mm -hmm. totally unique, with lots of little, and it, and it, and, and it, takes watching any number of times because you always see something different every time you watch it you know you Dude. see little things going on in the background that you didn't realize were happening that are jokes that the animators created and you know they had no idea that people would be watching these over and over and over they just did it because it struck them as funny 
the pumpkin king we have it every year yeah. it's must watch oh yeah 100 oh, right. yeah right. it's a must watch for people around the world you were actually able to reprise the role a few times i think at some disneyland disney world events i've done i've done all the voice for jack at uh, disney world and disneyland the haunted uh, whatever they do at halloween um also the video games the king king of king hearts um um there are three or four video games that I've done where, again, you sit in front of a mic and you repeat lines over and over again and you scream and you yell uh, so that the, the uh, people who are playing the game can have choices. It's, it's crazy, but it's also interesting. I want to get into your most proud role. What role are you most proud of throughout your entire career? I for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm proud of, well, I'm proud of obviously that, of, of Nightmare Before Christmas, just because of what it's become. I'm really proud of Princess Bride, just because I had, we had such a great time. And also I loved that property. I loved, I read the book way like, you know, years and years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, and, uh, and the group of people who were involved, including Rob Reiner and Chris Guest and, you know, Rob, Robin Wright and, and Carrie Elwes, who's a very close friend of um, Dog Day, I'm really proud of because it was the very first movie. But something that a lot of people don't know, so I, I get it's people who, who come up and talk to me about it because they watched it in school with this uh, Tale of Two Cities mm -hmm. that I did for uh, CBS Hallmark Hall of Fame, where I played two, the two characters, both Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay. And you remember that book from school? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and it, first of all, it's a great story. And it was a big production in both London and Paris. And I got to work with some of the great, great British actors, including uh, Peter Cushing, whom I mentioned, whom I met the first day of rehearsal, and a guy by the name of Nigel Hawthorne, who's uh, now passed away, but is lovely. Uh, David Suchet, who played uh, Inspector Poirot on the PBS, um, um, Agatha Christie's, a uh, woman named Billy Whitelaw, um, uh, just, you know, these, uh, my man named Kenneth Moore, whom I idolized when I was younger, uh, all these great, but they were older at the time. Uh, a woman named Dame Flora Robson. Uh, I, I, you know, I was like, golly gee, I get to, I get to work with all these, <laughs> these wonderful people. I felt like I was 10 years old again, you know, mm -hmm. and watching, uh, watching a movie that I was in. Uh, and also, um, it, it was one of the movies that I, I got to sort of use my whole tool chest. You know what I mean? Yeah. that um, the stuff that I do well, I got to do in this movie. You know, I got to do an accent, um, a very, you know, great British accent. I got to play a character role of this sort of dissolute uh, attorney. Uh, and um, uh, those roles are always much more interesting to play. And I got to work with all these great people. And I made some friends uh, while I was shooting it as well. And um, uh, it was, yeah. It was one of my proud moments. Mm -hmm. Heroes, vampires, and villains, your upcoming memoir. I, I want to touch on this because you've been working on it for a while, I believe. Yep. And with COVID-19, you, you're 
you're currently searching for a, a publisher, I believe. Yep. Yep. My agent and I are uh, sort of lying in the bushes, waiting for things to calm down a little bit. Um, and I'm also, uh, I grew up in a restaurant. My dad owned a restaurant in my hometown in West Virginia. And I'm, uh, I've always been involved with food. I've always cooked. Uh, I've always been interested in food, but I didn't want to go into the restaurant business with my dad for obvious reasons. It's a tough business. Uh, <clears throat> I have a son who's a chef, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tr trained chef. And um, all my kids cook and are fabulous cooks. Uh, but one of the things that's always interested me is that the way I grew up, I grew up around it all the time. Uh, we ate in the restaurant um, every other week. We ate dinner at the restaurant because my dad worked that shift. Mm -hmm. And then he'd come home five days, you know, seven days, and then he'd work seven days. Uh, and so I started working in the restaurant when I was like nine years old, started washing dishes. My dad, you know, you, you got to you got to see how this works and also you got to see that it's all it's not all life isn't all easy because he had a very tough life he was first he came here when he was relatively young and and so i have a, a sort of love hate relationship with food but at the same time i've always been it's always been in my life and uh one of my uh, in-laws my sister-in-law said to me you know you you've got this presence of, of being in the movies, etc., and these iconic movies, and you have this background uh, in food, and uh, uh, is there some way to combine that in, in something that is, uh, that is out there in the public? And I thought, well, what's always interested me is how we grow up with food, uh, whether your parents cooked a lot, whether your mom was a cook or your dad was a cook, what were your favorite dishes when you were a kid, and not only that, but what? how does that carry over into your adult life? Are you still interested in that? Do you still cook? And uh, I, for instance, I, I've already interviewed somebody who's an old friend of mine who's a federal judge. He and I went to drama school together, right? But now theater school, but now he's a, a judge and sits um, in uh, Charleston, West Virginia. And I sat down and just talked to him because I know he cooks and he's a gourmet cook, right? And I talked to him about when he was growing up and he told me this amazing story about this woman who lived with his family, who was functionally illiterate, but who was a cook who would literally grab ingredients by the handfuls and throw them together like this and then make this amazing bread that he still makes. So what interests me is that kind of story of, of first of all, the picture of this woman that he, he paints so beautifully and also this recipe that he now makes himself. So it's, it's a thread of his life that he carries with him into his, he's in his seventies now. And he still makes, and he can only make 10 loaves at a time because that was her recipe, right? Uh, so when he makes it, he gives bread to, to friends and he said, it's the most amazing bread in the world, but it's, the recipe is ridiculous. Um, that's the kind of story that I'm interested in. So I'm starting to talk to, I have a friend who's a, um, an actor who's been on a bunch of TV series, who's uh, also a, a major chef. Uh, I'm going to interview him this week. Um, there are a number of other people that I'm I'm approaching that I've worked with in the past who are actors who are reasonably well known. I know some a couple of politicians, uh, a couple of former governors, that sort of thing. 
I don't know. It'll happen or it won't happen. But in the meantime, it's going to be interesting to me because I'll get to do what you're doing now. I'm going to sit <laughs> and talk to somebody. We're going to chat. I'm going to ask them questions. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. Oh, yes. And it's going to be important, but fun information to learn about. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. I'm going to call it food and memory. Let's see. <laughs> yeah. And we're looking forward to that. But do you think it could release probably by next year, the end of next year, perhaps? I, I would think it would it better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so if I don't get off my, my uh, keister, it, it, it may last a little longer. But I'm sitting literally here with uh, a whole list of edits that I'm going to do on my, my friend the judge's uh, uh, interview. And uh, I've got a couple of others to do. And then we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. I do want to get into a quick sports segment because oh. I didn't even know that you were a big sports fan. Oh, and major, man. Major, major. Yankees and Knicks. Everything, yeah. How about football? Who's your football team? Giants. Giants. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm a Jet fan, so the Giants, uh -oh. it, it could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I had hopes for the Giants this year, and uh, uh, my feeling is that I, I like to think that Danny Dimes is coming into his own. Mm -hmm. uh, he played an amazing game this last Washington game, the, the Washington football team game. Uh, but for the mistakes that the team made, uh, they'd have won that game. Mm -hmm. um, but I have hopes for the future. You know, you, you, <laughs> that's what keeps us interested, right? <laughs> In sports is uh, the hope that someday your team will, as, as, I mean, think about the transformation that the Knicks made just in a period of a year with the acquisition of Julius Randle and the, the, uh, some, some terrific draft picks. The great coach, Tom Thibodeau. And, and exactly. And, and, and to a certain extent, not to a certain extent, also the addition of Leon Rose as the, the, the sort of flag bearer for the team, you know, because people have complained since I've been in New York about James Dolan yeah. <laughs> and, you know, some of his hires, but I think he got it right this time. And we all thought it was going to happen with Phil Jackson and it didn't. No. Uh, but now I think they're on the right track. They're doing it the right way. I think the Knicks are on the right track because they, they made the playoffs for the first time since 2013. Yep. They bring in Kemba Walker Evan yeah. Fournier. Well, let's talk about the acquisitions, the offseason acquisitions, which I think were also very wisely considered rather than making a, uh, a more, what, big, big star splash in the free agent market. They filled needs. They did. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hometown boy in this regard. Uh, I come from West Virginia and they, they, they uh, they drafted Miles McBride, <laughs> and I watched him all through his college career because I followed WVU both because I went to school there. I follow football, basketball, and he's a player. Yes, this kid's tenacious. He performed in summer league pretty well. Oh yeah, yeah. He's gonna be he's gonna be and he's a Thibodeau kind of player. Mm -hmm. Anybody who can play for Bob Huggins can play for Tim Thibodeau. Uh, Tom right. Thibodeau. You got that right. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the Knicks. Who's your favorite Nick player of all time? Is it Patrick Ewing? My favorite Nick player was a good, good question. Maybe. Well, I kind of, you know, I had such a, such a kind of romantic idea of, because I didn't, I wasn't, well, I kind of was around when they won the, the championship, uh, but the, the Bradley, 
uh, Willis Reed. Oh, the Bill uh, Bradley. Yeah, and uh, David sure, Walt Wister, Frazier. Frazier, those guys. Uh, I still have a kind of, you know, romantic ideal of that team because that was such a, a team, quote in quotes, mm -hmm. in that they're, they're, it, it take one player away and it doesn't work. It no. was the it was the it was the combination of of that particular uh, group of people, and also there was such an interesting group of guys. You know, Bradley, who was you know Brainiac, uh, college player of the year, uh, who became a senator, uh, and DeBusher, who was a kind of working class guy, who were best friends. I mean, it was a it was a really interesting just from a kind of what theatrical standpoint. You know, from <laughs> my looking at it from that point of view. Uh, it was the stories were great, and I think that that these Knicks are creating that kind of atmosphere. Um, they have the right kind of team first uh, point of view. There's no, I mean, Randall is obviously the 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 main, the main guy, yeah, in the wheel. But they're also now complementing him with uh, with players who are um, uh, workers. Uh, who play defense, uh, and now they've added a couple of shooters, which they sorely needed to take the load off of him, <laughs> the load off of Randall. Uh, so I'm I'm lo really looking forward to this season. Yeah, it's going to be one for the history books. I feel as though I hope so. They didn't I'm play not, like a team with Mello. I'm knocking so. on wood. What? They didn't play like a team with Mello. No, so I'm, no, I'm hoping really. now yeah. they they're starting to play like a team with Randall. I want to see this continue on. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, there was an interesting uh, dynamic when, uh, in the days when Charles Oakley and Mace, Anthony Mason were playing, and uh, I've forgotten somebody. John Starks. Starks, but Ewing. also, uh, yeah, Ewing and... Um, Derek Harper. No, not Derek Harper. I'll think of it, of course, when we're off the air. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, that was an interesting team, too. But I think, uh, I think they're back. We'll see. We'll see. You know, the league is loaded. Yeah. Especially the Western Conference. Yeah, especially uh, the team the, across town. And the, and the Nets. Right? Yeah. And the Nets. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it's a better kind of story narrative uh, when you're not playing, <clears throat> when it's not about three superstars, it's about a team coalescing together to create something that's better than anything else. We'll yeah. see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be the, thinking of you. Yes. <laughs> Yankees. Uh, I'm sure you're not happy the way they performed this year, but even though they, at, after the trade deadline, they got better. They got better, but they keep going through swoons. I've been watching a lot of Yankee games. My wife is out of town, so I don't have to worry about her complaining that I'm watching baseball all the time. <laughs> uh, and I've been watching a lot of Yankee games. And it's, it's so interesting, the dynamic of that team. Uh, their pitching carried them for a while. And then uh, Herman got injured. Uh, Severino's been injured forever. Now he, he pitched an inning last night or two. I don't know. Uh, I left the game when they were ahead seven to one because I had something to do. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's it, you know, it's a kind of interesting mix of veterans and, and young players and players who are on the, you can't call, um, uh, some of those players on the ascent because they're star players, but they haven't quite put it all together no. at one time. They, you know, they had that great streak, that 13 game streak, and then they lost what eight of nine games or seven mm -hmm. of eight. I don't can't remember now. Uh, 
but now they're on a little kind of mini streak, although they lost the series to Cleveland a couple of days ago. So it's, they're hard to figure out, you know, the commentators, this is essentially everybody saying the same thing. How do you figure this team out when you've got players like Aaron judge and uh, Stanton, Stanton, you know, go figure LeMahieu. uh, well, anyway, <laughs> again, it, it could be worse. You could be the match. You're going to be leading in the first in the NL yeah. East and then yeah. just drop down. <laughs> yeah. What happened? They just, they just lost. They just started losing all their games in August. DeGrom was injured early well, on. As soon as they lost DeGrom, I knew I was like, here we go. That was a huge loss, huge loss to Grom. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and Garrett Cole for the Yankees, you know, the last couple of games, he's had a hard time. So it's you it's unpredictable but that's what's interesting about sports yeah you know you think you know what's going to happen but uh, and it's the one thing it's it's interesting because people always ask me like when you sit down with a newspaper what do you read first and i say i go to the sports page what really and i say yeah <laughs> well why because on the front page it, it's all about the, the uh, things that are on the precipice you don't know what's going to happen one way or another no in sports, there's a winner and there's a loser, and you know the results. You know where it's gone. You know where it's gone. You don't know necessarily where it's going, but you know where it's gone, and you know that it'll be unpredictable, uh, and you'll have your heart broken, maybe, <laughs> uh, as we all do. You know, yeah. for sports fans. Only New York fans usually. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been a tough few years. Uh, Gino Smith, he was a product of West Virginia. Did you follow oh, yeah. him throughout yeah. college? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't pan out for the Jets, unfortunately. No, but. no he didn't. Yeah. And uh, there are a number of players from WVU. In the early, early days of uh, professional, there was a great, great couple of great players named uh, Sam Huff, mm-hmm. who was like one of the great all-time uh, linemen, uh, defensive linemen. Um, there were a number of players. But West Virginia has always been the, the little engine that could or couldn't, as the case may be. They've gotten better over the years when their coaches have gotten better and they're attracting better players. And also the university itself, the facilities have gotten better. The facilities are now extraordinary. I took my son there when he was going uh, going to go to college and uh, uh, we walked into the student union. Now the student union was a, you know, a barn uh, with uh, the rafters, the steel rafters showing when I was there. Basically it was just a bunch of tables and a couple of ping pong tables. Now there's a climbing wall and, uh, you know, the, the facilities are extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, three different campuses and it's, you know, it's like 25,000 students. And I talked to actually talked to a lot of kids who go to school there and they love it. Uh, and it's changing. Um, they, well, it, it'll be interesting. It'll, it, it will be. Gonna be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Sarandon, is there anything else you would love to let my audience know? Anything that you have coming out? I believe you're going out to LA. So if you want to promote whatever work that you have coming soon. Um, my, I'm essentially just going out to, to visit with my wife who's directing a movie out there. And the movie is called The Grotto. And it will probably be out sometime in, uh, toward the end of 2022. And it's a wonderful, wonderful script. Really fabulous. Um, my book, who knows, maybe sometime in uh, 2022. Uh, the podcast, hopefully sometime in the next six months, eight months, uh, that'll be happening. And, um, and my nine grandchildren, <laughs> whom I dote on and just adore. Oh, 
and congratulations on all your achievements and work. And in the podcast, I I want to get into this a little bit before we close out the show. What's the podcast going to be about? Well, essentially, it's going to be about uh, uh, growing up with food. Oh, so that that's the podcast. Okay. Yeah, the okay. Podcast. Yeah. So we talked yeah, about that before. I thought that was going to be a segment of the book. Okay. So yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. podcast. No, 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 that's the podcast, and it's essentially going to be called. I think we'll see what the title will be, but food and memory. Okay. And that is the things you remember from when you were a child, what they, what that, what food evokes in your life, because it's not necessarily just about the food. It's about what was happening at the time, uh, who you were in love with, what, uh, uh, who, you know, you, uh, your girlfriend, uh, um, college, who knows? Mm-hmm. I don't know where it's going to go. I know that uh, the interviews I've done so far That's have right. been very interesting because they, the thread is, is long. Uh, in our lives. And uh, it has many, you know, little knots in the thread that take us along our way. Mm-hmm. I-, I want the, you to let your fans know where they could follow you on social media as well. Ah, uh, well, I am uh, um, the, I, I have to actually, <laughs> actually have to look it up because my, uh, I have different monikers different names i don't have my phone here because i would but, but anyway uh, on on instagram i am uh the real chris sarandon i think mm-hmm. um i can't remember my twitter moniker or my facebook uh, i'm impossible just look <laughs> me up uh i'm i'm a, a a throwback in a lot of ways to the social media game but I'm getting uh, very sort of conversant with it. Ah, here's my phone. So, um, and I am, um, I'm also on a, something called Cameo. Okay. Which, uh, I do uh, recordings for people mm-hmm. uh, for birthdays, that sort of thing, which I thoroughly enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so much fun and so interesting. I am on um, the official Chris Sarandon on um, Instagram, and that links to Facebook. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure what I am on Twitter. I can never figure Twitter out. Yeah, it's that's the most difficult platform to use, yeah. in my opinion. And, and it doesn't really interest me having people, you know, talk in real time. Yeah. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just as soon sit down and watch an old movie. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Saranda, I want to thank you for your time here today. I enjoyed our conversation, our interview. And once you drop your memoir, we'd love to have you back on the show. After I read it, we can go over some things. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's much more involved than any of the stories I've told so far. Uh, And it's a pleasure to meet you, Max. I'm so glad that I got back in touch with you. Of course. And it's a true honor. I'm looking forward to reading the stories about Dino De Laurentiis and the projects that you, you turned down. Ah, yes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You Uh, take care. You too, Chris. Enjoy the rest of your day. Stay safe. Go Knicks. Go Knicks.